I'm Josh Hamilton. And I'm Joe Skinner. And this is the American Masters Podcast, where we have conversations with the people who change us. Today, we talk to indie pop stars Tegan and Sarah. That was I Don't Owe You Anything from Tegan and Sarah's new album, Hey, I'm Just Like You. This album emerged from the duo's rediscovered high school demo tapes, so the songs are crackling with the raw energy of a couple of high schoolers first discovering their talents. They began steeped in the grunge sound of their predecessors, bands like Nirvana and Hole, and through the years have turned into anthemic synth-pop superstars. They've sold over a million records worldwide, have received three Juno Awards, a Grammy nomination, and recently started the Tegan and Sarah Foundation, which fights for health, economic justice, and representation for LGBTQ plus girls and women. And of course, you might know them from performing Everything is Awesome from the Lego movie. In their new memoir, High School, Tegan and Sarah talk about everything that came before this, the awkward teen years, and all the battles that come with it. Joe spoke with Tegan and Sarah at the beginning of the album's tour, a multimedia experience with a 90s aesthetic, featuring passages from their book, VHS home movies, and stripped-down versions of their songs. Are you going to just wear 90s clothes for the duration of the tour, you think? <laughs> I think so. It's so roomy, you know? I've just, like, been shoving my body into these tight clothes for the last, like, 15 years, and all of a sudden it's, like, wide-legged stuff is back in, and I'm like, I don't know if it's because we're almost 40 or because I have some kind of hormonal imbalance, but, like, those pants don't feel good anymore. I want Jinkos to come back. Oh, my oh, God, love Jinkos. <laughs> love Jinkos. They're expensive if you look online. Are they really? Yeah. Can you went, still get new Jinkos? I don't know if you can get new ones, but like find, finding the vintage ones, I went on to um, eBay to look, um, and yeah, they're expensive. Wow. Well, oh, I will well, personally yeah. send you $50 in the mail if you wear Jinkos on stage. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's I so mean, fun. There's like an analog Kickstarter for them to wear <laughs> 90s clothes. Okay. Well, thank you both so much. You just started your tour, and... You also just released a book, and the theme of our season for the podcast this year is around origin stories and how artists draw inspirations from their own biography. And this is just a perfect fit, obviously. And I was just about to say, this literally <laughs> sounds like we're the perfect fit for this show. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> Did you, you know, come up with the podcast idea after you heard about um, about Tegan and Sarah's new memoir and their new album? No. It was Why am I talking about us in the third person? Sorry. <laughs> it was a cosmic coincidence. Uh, so you're not only mining your teenage years, but you're also directly producing music that you wrote from these years. Could you talk a little bit about the collaboration that you're having with your younger selves? And, you know, what this experience was like for you and revisiting the old material? Yeah, it's, it's when Sarah and I finished our last record cycle, which was about, you know, I mean, this November it'll be two years. So um, we kind of had this desire to still be creative, but not necessarily just jump right into making a new record. And one of the ideas we had was to maybe explore writing a book and within the first two conversations, we'd come up with the concept of writing about our adolescent selves, returning to high school. And the reason, the number one reason and the real pitch of the book was that it's the origin of Tegan and Sarah, because we started our band in high school. That's when we discovered we could play music. That's when we started songwriting. Um, 
But as we started writing, it got so intense because it's also when we discovered that we were queer or at least, you know, named it. Um, you know, we also really started to see ourselves as independent people and, you know, started to venture out on our own and make new friends. And, um, you know, it was also a troubled time for us. And so the more we wrote, the more we kind of dug into young us and got to know young us again. And it's been kind of fascinating because I think like most people, we thought we'd changed a lot. You know, it's been 20 years since we graduated high school. I think we'd left young us, adolescent us in the past, and we'd sort of written us off the way that we, I think, collectively as a society write off young people. And we had almost this sort of oversimplified patronizing tone about our early music and our early appearance and our early selves. And the more that we wrote and the more we got to know our young selves and, you know, wrote our origin story, I think the more we sort of loved young us and felt like we needed to restore young us. And, uh, you know, that inspired the new record. So that's why we recorded all these songs we wrote in high school. And I don't know, it's kind of been this real journey, a good journey, sometimes an emotional journey, but um, getting to know the early us has been kind of incredible. Why do you think we're so afraid to look back at at our early selves and, you know, what we made (laughs) or said back then? I've been thinking a lot about this because on one hand, I think that's true. I think that certainly in discussing this project, well, these projects with people, everyone is really quick to sort of tell us, like, I would never want to go back to high school. I hate the way I look or I I don't I don't want to know what I wrote about in high school because it would be so embarrassing. Like there's definitely that. But then I look around at what is being produced musically in film and television, just art in general and how you know, youth sort of influences the clothes that we wear um, and the just the entertainment content stuff that we all um, digest constantly. Like, you know, just in the last year, like some of my favorite stuff on TV, like sex education, uh, euphoria, um, you know, there it's being made about high school and it's being made about adolescence. And there's obviously this sort of cultural collective desire to um, to, to, to go back to that time. And, you know, I've even been thinking about it in terms of like my own, um, like youth and what I was interested in as a teenager. And I remember my mom would take us to the video store when we were in junior high and she would let us rent movies. And at some point she, like, we had sort of like exhausted the blockbuster, like, you know, new releases. And she introduced us to all the films that she liked when she like that we wouldn't have necessarily been hip to. Like she was like, oh, you should watch The Breakfast Club. And that sort of led us down this like rabbit hole of of John Hughes films. And um, and I just and, and so many of those films are centered in high school. And so I think, you know, yeah, I think we're all sort of a little embarrassed and uncomfortable, maybe even traumatized by our adolescence. And yet we are constantly, constantly using those years to make really important and interesting art. And so I think, you know, the fact that Tegan and I are getting this opportunity to sort of, um, I think on a personal level, sort of heal some some traumas and some wounds um, from our own adolescence, it's also really exciting to think that we're adding to this kind of, um, I don't know, this sort of cultural ritual of looking back at ourselves and and learning something interesting from it and maybe inspiring other people to do the same. You know, I found the book incredibly relatable also growing up in the 90s. And, you know, it just makes me wonder who you were writing the book for and if you had specific goals like that in mind while you were writing it. Because on paper, I may not seem like a perfect candidate to relate to the book, 
but I found myself cringing and laughing and enjoying myself in all the same, just yeah. reliving all the same kind of moments, <laughs> you know. And uh, sibling relationships are so universal and so many things. And I was just, Yeah, I was just wondering, did you have specific goals in mind for who you were targeting with the book? You know, it's an interesting, it's, it's a really great question, and it brings up a lot for me personally. I think Sarah and I have been on a 20-year journey to try to correct um, the, I think, often unfair exclusion that women experience in culture, like in our specific case, now books, but also in music, this idea that when women create things, it's only for women. And I don't think men ever have to deal with that. No one ever says when a new Harry Styles record comes out or a new Radiohead record comes out that that like a woman would never write about it and say, I'm, I found myself baffled that I felt so... Um, drawn to it. And Sarah and I over 20 years have seen just ridiculous statements from often men, but sometimes just straight people in general where they're like, I can't believe I understand. (laughs) I'm connecting to this. The human condition. (laughs) Wow. And um, so it's been this kind of journey for the last 20 years musically. And so it's been actually really funny to write this book and then have that same experience again, where um, every time we sit down with a man, they're like, holy crap, I really related to your book. It was like exactly <laughs> like my teenage experience. And I'm like, I know we liked girls and we were weird and awkward and, you know, had acne and it was tough. And so I, I, I don't know. I think to go back to your original question of like, who was this book written for? I suppose we're always thinking first and foremost, it's for everyone. Um, ultimately, we're always looking to make, you know, music and art and and tell a story that reaches as many people as possible. I suppose that is why we call ourselves pop musicians, because we're trying to, you know, be popular. And um, but I do think that when we were speaking to publishers and we were looking specifically at the themes to write about, we were saying, geez, there isn't a lot of stories told by women. We often don't hear women's voices in music specifically. And then when you really dive into like the queer female experience, there's even less out there. Um, so, I, you know, we, we certainly want to reach that audience, but I, I really, truly believe Sarah and I are always driving towards the mainstream because we want our story to become common. That does remind me, in one interview, I think it was, or maybe on, on stage or something, you said that you compared, uh, you said coming out is not a soundbite, and you compared mm-hmm. it to trying to solve a Rubik's Cube. Um, <laughs> and I thought that was brilliant. And... Uh, and I feel like that somehow relates to this, you know, not trying to not trying to pigeonhole, you know, ideas and people. The other thing, too, is that we've we've spent a great deal of the last two decades having really intimate conversations with strangers about ourselves. And a lot of those strangers, whether it's, you know, at a meet and greet or it's sitting next to someone on an airplane or, you know, in an, I don't know you. And we're like telling you really personal things about ourselves. And, you know, that experience of, I like to think of it as like simulated intimacy, (laughs) because like, I don't think it's the same as like what I have with my girlfriend or what I have with my best friend when we get on the phone. But we've really like learned how to have really open, frank, transparent conversations about things that are very difficult for most people to talk about and definitely really uncomfortable for people to talk about with strangers. And when I think about some of the stuff that people have revealed to us about their coming out and their early romantic sexual, you know, experiences, um, one of the things that really just keeps coming up for me as we see, um, you know, 
a whatever I don't know I don't know how you speak so broadly about it but like LGBTQ advances like as you see like same-sex marriage and you know um, people speaking more like openly and being better allies to the queer community and um, you know more representation in film and television there's also this like collective desire to sort of be like you guys it's so much better now like let's all talk about how it's better now and we feel good now and let's talk about how positive we feel about being gay and let's you know let's try to sort of like leave some of this other really tricky complicated stuff behind and you know one of the things that I really am excited about with the book and the way that it sort of touches on coming out is that Tegan and I are identical twin sisters who grew up in the same group of friends we had the almost the same environmental experiences and yet we had profoundly different coming out experiences we had an ex- we each had a very unique experience with our first secret girlfriends we experienced the closet like being closeted, not admitting we were gay, we experienced that really different. We internalized homophobia differently. We internalized our shame about our bodies really differently. And so if Tegan and I can be identical twin sisters, developmentally having this experience that should on paper kind of be similar, be so unique and different, and in some cases polarizing, um, I just think to myself, that's just it just shows how different all of our experiences are, how unique they are. And, you know, giving people a platform to speak about these things, even if they're not positive experiences, I think is really cathartic and it's some and it's culturally and socially valuable. And um and I don't know, I just like it's it feels like the right time for us to sort of engage in that conversation and not have it be a soundbite for the first time. Can you talk about how all the different accounts of your experiences with drugs and, and rave culture in Calgary? If, whether it's important to you to destigmatize some of the judgments around teenage drug use? Yeah, you know, it's been such a tough thing for Sarah and I over the last 20 years because uh, we had a lot of well-meaning parents that come to us asking questions about their adolescence. I don't know, something about us, even at a young age, people were always coming to us and asking, you know, I mean, not random people, but people at shows, you know, accompanying their kids to meet and greets. Um, obviously, a lot of parents travel and come with their, you know, uh, you know, newly out or or experimenting or questioning teenagers. And uh, I I feel like I gave the same advice about sexuality as I give about it, about drugs. You know, ultimately, it's a personal journey. And some of us take it and some of us don't. Some of us struggle with it and others don't. And for Sarah and I, drugs was a, a, a really integral part of our youth. It was a really, really important, very, like, short. You know, it was less than two years. But for us, we were very outgoing. We were very sweet and charming and excitable, extroverted teenagers on one hand. And on another hand, we had these very secret interior worlds where we were grappling with gigantic concepts about identity. And there was no language and there was no real representation. And I think that could have made us very different people had we not had music and had we not had drugs, both of which gave us the freedom to explore ourselves, to open our minds, to connect to each other, to connect to a group of people like us. And I think the music scenes that came along with that, so we were first in the punk rock alternative music scene and then in the rave scene, we met other people like us, other people questioning themselves. And I think that it, it kind of pushed Sarah and I out of our shells. And once we started to write music, of course, we replaced that, you know, drug use with music. We became addicted to performing, to writing, to perfecting our art, to mastering our craft and creating a career for ourselves. 
but I do really look back fondly on our drug use because I feel like I lost my inhibition. I lost my in- in- insecurity. I felt connected. I felt cellularly connected to my friends and to Sarah, most importantly. Um, but lucky for us, when we were high, we didn't feel connected to writing music. Sarah and I both experienced a very similar disgust of our instrument, so the guitar, when we were high. And so as we became more infatuated with writing music, we became less infatuated with drugs. We were lucky ones. So we've obviously struggled with how to tell this story because we don't want to encourage young people or anyone for that matter to go do drugs because they are also dangerous. They are illegal. They you know, don't necessarily bring out the best in everyone. We just happened to be really good at it. We were able to keep it sort of under wraps and in, under control. And it was a different time. Drugs were different. But Certainly on the public side of things, we feel like men get to talk about experimentation. Men are celebrated for being kind of out there and fringe and taking drugs and expanding their minds. And I think women are stigmatized for it. Um, we've certainly experienced that in the music industry. It's it's like, you know, I've had people in the industry who work for us take liquor out of my hand when I'm on my first glass of wine. You know, there's a off to bed now, girls, look your best tomorrow. And I don't think men get treated that way. And so, you know. You mentioned during that answer that you, you were unable to to write music while you guys were, ex- in, mm-hmm. you know, exploring drug use. What was your songwriting process like at this time? And, you know, in, in some of your home movie footage, we see some awesome posters of Nirvana and you talk about <laughs> Smashing Pumpkins and Hole. And we get a little glimpse of some of your inspirations at, at, in that era. Uh, but can you talk a little bit about your songwriting process? And also, could you talk a little bit about, you know, how you first created the, the Tegan and Sarah sound? The songwriting process, I guess, I guess in high school, you know, for us, everything was about our bedrooms. You know, we that's where we, like, you could come home from school, make something to eat, go up to the bedroom, lock the door, listen to music. Like, everything important to me was in that r- one room. It was like I was, like, had moved out and was living in my own studio apartment, and my parents just happened to live down the hall. Like, it was like I wanted to be in that room at all times. And so when Tegan and I found uh, our stepdad's guitar and we started shuttling it back and forth between our bedrooms and writing songs, um, it just sort of became another sort of ritualistic thing that we did um, in our bedrooms. It was like, you know, sit with the guitar and strum certain patterns of chords and, and try to sing melodies and write lyrics over top of it. I mean, it was really basic. And I think I, I, I really, really searched my mind when we were writing the memoir for some experience or some, uh, maybe like a TV show or a movie or something where I would have learned how to do it. But I think it, it just sort of was like, it was just something we like obviously picked up from being so interested in music culture that, you know, if you sort of mimicked or performed the way your heroes performed, you would be able to come up with something sort of similar. And Tegan and I talk a lot in the book about how there was once we had learned how to make like power chords, which for people who don't play guitar is like an extremely simple shape with your hands. It only involves pressing two of your fingers on two of the, you know, two of the six strings on the guitar. And it is pretty easy to like make something that sounds like not crappy. And so once we figured out how to master that, we were just like, we wrote like 40 songs, you know, it was like, oh, we can make this chord and it doesn't sound terrible. And we had a little bit of music background because we had played piano, but Tegan and I just kind of were like, we we're just being very intuitive. Like it was just sort of like sitting there and, and trying out different ideas. And we also had each other as sort of like little mini producers. It was like, I would play something for Tegan and she would, if she acted excited, it was like, okay, great, I'm onto something. And then she might say, oh, you know, let me try something 
in the choruses underneath you. We probably wouldn't have even said chorus. I don't even know no. if we would have used the word. But <laughs> well, no, because in your journal you did write like little. I did. I guess next yeah. to it, we understood verse. We didn't wouldn't have said like a pre-chorus, but no. we understood what a chorus and verse was. We had no idea what a bridge. The chorus was. was either the loudest part or the quietest part. Yeah. We just you know. We, we I just... think the big thing was that we didn't. We wouldn't work on a song for a long time. That's that's one thing that's really different. It's clear by the output that we had during the two years we were in high school that we were capable of writing music. We just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. You'd write and then, every day. And then determine it was it was finished. We'd record it for each other and then we'd move on. There was no tinkering and perfecting. Once a song was written, it was done and we would just, you know, kind of like interlay our vocals or another guitar. Um you know, to give the song a bit of texture, but then we would just move on. And then you can see through the course of those 40 songs, we reuse ideas, we reuse concepts, we we recycle certain lyrics. Obviously, I don't, I can't jump back really into the thought process behind that, but it's clear that like maybe something that we really liked, we've, we're now tired of this song, but we'll just steal from it and put it into another song. And so there's a lot of, you can see that kind of tinkering happening, happening over the course of those two years through our production. So, but we always joked that there's just no one who loves to hear the sound of their own voice, like an early musician, like a new <laughs> musician. Like it's just the song. There's a song we have called Here I Am, which was like six minutes long. There's nine, nine different parts in the song. And it's just, you know, there's just an enormous amount of exploration that was happening during that time. But there's also a quick release, like, a, an, uh, you know, uh, uh, a jumping off the song and getting on to the next thing, like an impatience, which I think feels very adolescent in that early music. And when you first discovered these old demo tapes that you based the new album on, uh, were they, you know, like you said, a bunch of different iterations and variations on on single songs, or were they? Did you find a, a compiled, sort of mastered demo tape? There were there were a number of um, tapes that we found, and and on those tapes, there was like exactly as you described it. There were songs that really felt like, wow, this is like very. Actually, I was extremely surprised when Tegan sent me some of the music because I thought, this is going to be gibberish. It's going to be incoherent. And I was really shocked at how fully formed a lot of the music was. And then there was, like, stuff that was a bit, like, I mean, we just, like Tegan said, we just were obsessed with the sound of what we were making. So it was, like, if I had an idea or I had a, even just, like, a songlet, it was, like, let's record it. So some stuff needed, needed needed to sort of um needed to be reworked and needed needed some of the polish of of adult Tegan and Sarah and then other stuff it was just like oh wow this is like it doesn't even need anything it's just perfect the way that it is I really wish uh, Tegan didn't go to school today ended up on the album <laughs> <laughs> I'm still waiting oh, for man. the bonus track yeah <laughs> it's on the you can hear it on the audio version of the book which is um fun I actually feel like the recording of that isn't so bad I, I could imagine we also play it on radio at some point so we have another recording of it but it's hard some of those early songs there's a silliness and we were really you know as we pulled together the record itself there was a there was there was really only two things that we decided right off the bat. We didn't want anything too silly, which so we adapted or you know changed some of the lyrics that were kind of whimsical and ridiculous. Um, but we also felt like Tegan didn't go to school today was silly. Now the song itself is great, and there is something really awesome about the song and the fact that it was in that first batch of songs that we wrote does make it really special. But you know there was still part of us that sensed that if we didn't take it really serious, if we didn't pull the best, most commercial parts out of those early demos, that people would write this off as, um, 
not our next record, like not the next Tegan and Sarah record. Mm. I don't, I don't know how to articulate it in a different way other than to say, like, I just wanted to make sure that people took this record as serious as they would any other one of our records. There's nothing different about this other than the songs are older, but they're still Tegan and Sarah songs. We just never brought them to their full capacity. And I was really afraid of leaving some of the silly lyrics or to put some of the songs that weren't, you know, strong. Cause I just, I was really fearful that people would be like, Oh, that new, batch of songs. It's just Tegan and Sarah songs from high school. So it's been a, a labor of love to make sure that it still sits, you know, in its own right, like as the next Tegan and Sarah record. Maybe it really it'll is. be the maybe Tegan didn't go to school today will be the lead single off of our kids record. <laughs> that you know? would be, there you go. That would be a great purpose for it, I think. Definitely. Is that is that like a compromise yeah. that you would be okay with? Yeah, I would be okay with it. I think the content <laughs> is it's a little it's a little it's it's on the sweeter side, but it's really hooky. So it, I think I think kids would like it. So when's the kids' album coming out? Well, <laughs> my God, we've got a lot on our plate right now. So I mean, we'll it could see. work. We are doing a graphic novel series yeah. that's aimed at uh, kind of grade eight, grade nine know, aged students. Maybe uh, there could be a kids' companion record. Yeah, with maybe. That. I feel like people get into making kids stuff when they have children. Like they mm. become so obsessed with their own children, and then they become obsessed with children in general, and then they become interested in making content for those children. And um, currently, I could be persuaded to make something for my cats. Like, I could be interested in doing something for cat culture, but right now with kids, no, it's fine. They've got lots. They don't need us. <laughs> so were kids in high school at the time, uh, did they all know that you were musicians and exploring music? And was that something that excited, you know, your peers? Yeah, I think there was a, I mean, definitely our 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 social circle was aware of it because we forced them to constantly <laughs> listen to us. And we were so annoying. It was one of the most embarrassing moments for me when I was going through all the VHS footage that we have from the 1990s. We would do these parties and we were just like, just complete like jerks. Like we'd be like, you guys be quiet. It's really annoying when you move around and talk. Like we're just such jerks. <laughs> but we really... I don't know if we were jerks. We were just oh my God, really we took into our, playing. We really took ourselves seriously. Like we went totally from being the life of the party, like having fun, partying, dancing, to being like everyone sit quietly and watch us perform. But um, <laughs> and we can't be drinking while we're doing it. But uh, yeah, I think everybody was really. This is something that I've like found out later. I didn't understand this at the time. I knew people liked our band, and when we would go to parties or we would, um, you know, we in the summers we would go out and hang out in these big parks in Calgary, and we would bring our guitars. And we had this group of friends that was really eclectic. You know, there was kids that went to raves, and there was we hung out with some kids who were break dancers. And I have these memories of us like. Uh, like such an eclectic group of people like we all bring our like thing with us like it's like Tegan and I have our acoustic guitars and like our friends who are break dancers have brought like cardboard flats because they just they're gonna be like break dancing all night long in the park and like we just were I don't know and like people had skateboards and like some of our friends were dancers and like everybody was just really artistic and everybody wanted to like do their thing and um, and we were also supportive of that, and we were really open-minded about each other's interests. And you basically just describe we're like it's like the Calgary <laughs> version of like fame. Yeah, except that everybody was really drunk and sometimes stoned. <laughs> but you know, I think it. I think it was just like really wonderful, and we felt really seen by those people. And we, you know, I I didn't think of it at the time, but like they really taught us what it meant to have a community and what it meant to have a fan base that was. Like, there was so much reciprocity, and I just remember at the time feeling so realized by all of them. And one of the interesting, wonderful things that has come out of making both this album and then writing the memoir is that so many people we went to high school with, who we are still friends with, who we are very close with still to this day, 
this has given them such a thrill, like to to be able to interact with this story again and to be able to hear these songs, which for so many of them were a bit of a soundtrack. And I didn't, we didn't talk like that in high school. Like my friends weren't like, thank you very much for writing a soundtrack to our life. They were just like, I like your songs. But now we're all adults in our late 30s and early 40s. And so many of the messages that we get from our friends from that time are like, oh my God, I didn't realize how important these songs were still to me. Like to hear them brings up all of these really deep, intense memories for people. And um, and so now I feel like for the first time after like so many years, I'm realizing that these people were like legitimate fans, that they really, really loved what we did. But I mean, we were doing it completely exclusively for them, which is ma- which makes it even more special. The live show feels like it has a lot of intention to it. You know, all these decisions are being made around where you're placing the books on stage and the decision to perform a heavily acoustic set. What are you trying to communicate through this specific tour? Well, I think when we look at the book, and and look at the age we were, there was a simplicity to what we were doing. There was just two of us, and yet there was power in what we were doing, just the two of us. So we felt that to go out and do this first tour, just the two of us would be, you know, an homage to that time. It's also something our fan base asks for all the time. We spend all this time, like, getting a band together in production, and they're just, they just, they claim to really just want us to stand up there, play acoustic, and tell stories. So we, we really wanted to feed that part of the fan base. But then when I looked at the music itself and the intention behind the record and a lot of the messaging in the in the record and the lyrics themselves, but also just around this, you know, sort of concept that we're putting out there, there's this idea of, um, you know, taking a bit of a step down off the stage, off the platform, connecting with our audience, but also uh, confirming something that we've always thought, but maybe we have never said out loud, which is that we are just like our audience. We came from a very similar place. We experience a lot of the same things that they do, that this incredible life we've worked very hard for, but have also been very lucky to get, has created this... um, division or this, you know, kind of um, disconnect a bit, like where we're up on this platform being loved and applauded. And we just kind of wanted to come down off the stage. We wanted to create something that felt much more uh, community driven. And we wanted to create an experience that felt truly intimate. We've been sort of expanding ourselves, expanding our image, expanding our reach, expanding our community and fan base and making the music bigger and wider and louder and more explosive. And there was just this desire to return to our roots, I think. Um, So, I mean, we've only got one show down, but it felt really special. It felt really nice to do it and i think after all this time it's 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 good to put us in a position where we're out of our comfort zone and and we too are experiencing something new in the show i noticed that naomi and alex are people from your story that really carry the live show and while they're central in the book they feel even more central in the live show i guess i'm i was curious to kind of unpack that a little bit and why these were such touchstone relationships from this part of your life I think what really appeals to me about sort of amplifying those parts of our story and and those parts for you know for people who haven't read the book the Naomi and Alex are the first girls who Tegan and I had relationships with in secret um sort of under the guise of like they're my best friend but really what's going on is obviously much more significant than that and um I think why that material sits better in a live setting or why it's maybe my, where we focused our energy for the live show is because it's probably what I think our audience is most curious about. And I think it's where they sort of intersect in 
in a relational way. I mean, most of the people who come up to us in meet and greets and talk about our music or the significance of songs, it's it's usually one or two, one of two things. It's either I was broken up with or I met my future partner listening to your music. This is my favorite song, you know, et cetera. And then there's the person who comes up and says, you know, I was I was a closeted teenager in high school and you gave me the strength to come out. So those are the two areas of the sh- in the show that we really focus on. You know, our own sort of like uh, struggles with identity and accepting our queerness and coming out and then these really early formative relationships with women um that in in very different ways impacted um you know how we learned to be loved and how we lo- learned to love and i think because both alex and naomi were um a big part of our early songwriting they were i mean i know for myself when i started my secret relationship with naomi i was 15 years old really i was basically i was actually 14 i mean we were sort of like emotionally very deeply involved with each other in junior high and it turned into a physical relationship in high school and she was my first muse. I mean, she was the first person I wrote songs about. She was the first girl who broke my heart and who I wrote breakup songs about. And so because so many of our fans come to our shows carrying those stories, carrying those losses and, um, you know, I think I wanted to share ours. You know, I, I think I wanted to share, share those experiences that so often we don't talk about more. Th- I mean, going back to the soundbite idea from the top of the show, we 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 talk about oh yeah, we were broken up with, and I wrote a bunch of songs at the end. But it was like this was a really wonderful wonderful place for us to sort of dig into that material. You know, discovering sexuality is really kind of central to the high school experience for a lot of people. Do you think it was more or less challenging having a sibling alongside you going through a similar process? I think for me, witnessing. I mean, I shouldn't even use the word witnessing. I obviously had a a sense that Sarah was having a relationship with Naomi, her best friend. Um, There were, you know, grand changes to our friendship the second they got kind of close to getting together. Even before they got together, there was a gradual removal of me from the more intimate parts of the hanging out time. Like when it was time for bed, I would kind of be relegated to to the guest bedroom rather than sharing, you know, a room with them. And that was a really new thing. That was a very big change and a shift. And so, you know, I think a lot of the initial... Um, the initial period of time when Sarah started to experiment, I didn't really know exactly what was going on. So I think I associate a little bit of anxiety and confusion with um, my first realizations that Sarah might be gay or whatever I would have called it at that time, like experimenting with a girl. Um, You know, I don't have a ton of negative associations with my sexuality. I definitely struggled with naming it. I definitely struggled with when I should come out and how. I definitely felt, I I mean, I use the word frigid, but I, I, I guess... I guess it'll do for now. <laughs> I think there was a frigidness. Like I had crushes on girls. And once I sort of figured out, oh, this is a crush, there was a sort of, uh, you know, a, a long stretch of time where I didn't know what to do with those feelings. Um, it's hard because as I wrote the book, I realized there were so many people we knew that were experimenting. It was very, it was very much an unspoken thing, but it was something that I feel like everyone understood to be happening. Uh, that may or may not be true. It seems very obvious now, but it's interesting because even though rave culture was queer, even though my own sister was, you know, experimenting. And even though there were other girls in our group that were experimenting, it took me a long time to get there. I didn't, you know, get together with Alex until grade 12. Um, But once it happened, at least for me, it felt so natural and exciting and fun. And yet I still kept it a secret. And I think that 
Sarah and I both experienced at that point a sort of frustration, at times homophobia, and I think that was because we felt the other was going to give away our secret. Um, and I, again, I think that was just, you know, homophobia and fear. You know, I don't think that either one of us wanted the other to stay in the closet or, you know, I think I experienced a bit of like Sarah maybe thinking that I was copying her. Maybe there was irritation or agitation. But honestly, mostly what I experienced around my identity at in in high school and during adolescence was just not being sure of when or how to articulate it and and just thinking, well, I'll do it when I get out of high school. Um, I think there was something deeply awkward for me about the idea of talking about sexuality because to me it equated to talking about sex and I just didn't want to talk about sex. Even now, I think sometimes that's where my uncomfortableness will creep up is that something about saying I'm queer or I'm gay, it's like I'm also saying at the same time, hi, I'm Tegan, I I have sex with women. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know why. And that is probably just homophobia, but there's just no one says to me, I don't know. It's just a weird thing. So I think as a teenager, that's what I equated it with. And so there was just, I didn't want to talk about sex with boys either. I hated talking about sex a lot in general. Of, yeah, there was, I was just thinking to myself, like, thinking about your question too. And, you know, would it have been different if we were straight? You know, like, what would we have been like if we were straight? Would we have been like, we didn't talk I had sex, sex with a in boy. our friend group. Like, I don't think we talked. We were just, no. we were, there was something very. We were very, like, non-sexual as a group well, we of people. Well, we came from, a, all of the people in our family, like, my mom, my dad, and my stepdad were all raised Catholic. And they all refer to themselves as recovering Catholics. Like, none of them were practicing. We didn't go to church or anything. Um, but I do think there was, like, something sort of buttoned up about everyone in our family. Like, I, you know, I don't want to, like, disclose people's, you know, sexual coming out stories or whatever. But like, I, I've I've heard st wild stories that just like blow my mind. Like, I know people who like, upon deciding that they were going to have sex with their high school boyfriend, sat down with their parent and said, I'd like to go get birth control. <laughs> and I'd like to plan for, you know, safe sex. And I'm just like, that happens? Like, what? Like, I just, the thought of actually sitting down and talking to my parent before I had sex about the sex I was going to have. Never was going to happen. It's utterly shocking to me. And in fact, when I see it done in television and movies, I'm like, that doesn't happen. <laughs> that is not a real thing. No one sits down with their parent and says. I think people do. I know, but I don't believe it. <laughs> I'm going to have to have children and my child's going to have to sit me down and say, mother, I don't know. I just decided mother. I was going to be called oh mother. God. I don't Sarah's know. going to be called mother, mother. I'm going to have sex and I need your assistance in making sure it's safe. Yeah, we were just awkward as hell about sex. I think it, so sexuality only complicated it further. But ultimately, yeah. I think we were really worried to blow each other's cover. And, you know, it was just I was also scared. I was afraid. I was so afraid for myself. And I was so afraid um, that when I started to realize that Tegan was gay, it felt it was like a burden like, I was like, oh, God, we're both gay. Like, great. Great, we're both gay. Like, that's like that seemed so much more stressful than if it was just me who was gay. Like, I didn't feel relieved. I was like, oh, God. Like, it just it just sort of doubled, doubled the weight that I was already carrying. Also, growing up in a rural community, do you think that had any impact on this period? In I, don't, I don't think so, you know, because in a lot of ways— you know, when we talk to friends who, like, okay, I have a friend who grew up in upstate New York and, you know, went to a small high school and, you know, didn't know any other gay people and didn't have access to raves or drugs or music culture or whatever. Like, by all, you know, like, 
I think it's fair to say that we actually had quite a cosmopolitan cultured experience given the circumstances. Like we were going to raves and I saw, you know, men, like my first raves, it was the first time I'd ever even seen gayness. Like I, I saw men touching each other or holding each other's hands or kissing each other or like snuggling up in the music, you know, in the dark or whatever, listening to music. Do people snuggle at raves? I don't know. You know, like cuddling or whatever. Like, I guess I'm trying to like, I don't know why I'm being like polite. Like, like like, probably on like, well, probably like on ecstasy or like giving each other back massages or whatever. But like, I remember thinking like, wow, I'd never seen men be gentle with each other. I'd always seen men punching each other or like slapping each other on the back or like football team or whatever. Like, I'd never seen men be, well, to me, the culture felt very feminine. It actually felt very... It felt like all that toxic masculinity that was everywhere in our school and music and all these places. When we went to raves, there was this sort of like queerness to the whole thing, even if people weren't gay. And I think like all, you know, my my mom would talk to us about gay people. My mom would say like, it's okay to experiment. And, you know, there was actually quite a lot of social cues and space which somehow didn't us, make it any easier. No, that's what I mean. Like, yeah. I don't know. My mom would bring us, my mom brought us home, like, independent films with, like, queer storylines. And, like, you know, we, uh, these videotapes that Tegan and I found, one of the things that really broke my heart about them is that we constantly are interviewing people. Like, we were, like, these, like, little mini journalists running around the school being like, excuse me, can I ask you some questions? And we constantly ask people about homosexuality. We use that word. We say, how do you feel about homosexuals? How do you feel about homosexuality? Like, do you think people who are, like, homosexuals are, like, stereotyped? And we we clearly were comfortable enough to talk about the ideas, but I just don't think, even with all of that gayness and openness and whatever around us, we something prevented both of us from feeling comfortable enough to talk about it publicly. And I think, you know, I, I think that's not dissimilar to the way it is now. You know, I think this idea that, like, oh... A bunch of famous musicians came out as gay and there's some characters on TV who are gay and, you know, Bank of America has a gay pride float now. So, like, everybody should be fine, right? We're all fine with it. Raise your hand. Everybody's good? Great. Everybody's comfortable. And it's like, that's not the way it works. Like, I talk to kids all the time, adults. I talk to adults and kids all the time who are still not comfortable with their sexuality. And we're talking about historically decades and decades and decades of just, horrible, rampant homophobia. It is like institutionalized. It is built into our systems. Of course, we still feel uncomfortable. And I think you can have the gayest stuff around you and still not quite feel good about yourself. I think that's totally normal. Your career spanned a huge, a huge change for the LGBTQ community from, you know, the 90s to now, even with a lot still saying, staying the same. Were you treated as musicians and advocates for this community in a different way in the beginning versus how you are now? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because when we first um, started playing music, we were both uncomfortable with how to talk about our identity. and um, But obviously it was clear to the to, to specific gay press that we were gay even before we'd come out. I mean, where were we going to come out? I mean, we were 19 years old. We were out. Nobody cared. We were out. But like, it, you know, when with the very minimal amount of press we were getting, it wasn't a question that would come up automatically. But then we got the cover of Lesbian News, uh, which was like this, I, th- I think it was called Lesbian News. Like they don't put straight people on the cover. No. Of and it was not like, whoopsie daisy, we have a couple gays, we have a yeah. couple straights on there. And so obviously they knew. And again, you know, that part of our career, the early, early, early part of it isn't documented well because there just wasn't social media. There just wasn't that much coverage of us. We were such a small band. So 
it's hard to say exactly what it was like at the beginning, other than to just go back in our memory. Like we didn't write, it's not like high school. We didn't write journals. We didn't, we weren't running around backstage, Sarah and I interviewing each other about homosexuality anymore. So it was like, it's hard. But I, I, my memory of the time is that it was just really awkward. No one really asked. When it did come up, it was weird. You know, we were often talking to men who were decades older than us, which is who mainly, you know, at that time, it was predominantly men that interviewed us for indie rock and rock magazines. And it just seemed awkward. There was no language. We didn't have it yet. They didn't have it yet. I think we went through that phase that every, you know, person who's othered goes through where it's like you want to be, you're like, I'm done being othered now. I'd like to just be included in the the full conversation. Why do I always have to talk about being a woman? Why do I always have to talk about being queer? Why do I always have to talk about being a twin? You know, we went through that awkward phase of our career. And so, yes, now is a completely different time. It's hard to even compare. It's a different world. The language is so different. People just in general, I feel our society and the and the media has grown up so much and matured so much and things have changed so much. Uh, you know, I think that the the way that the queer community supported us at the beginning is very different than the way they support us now. I think that there was a huge stretch of our career, I would be so bold as to say 15 years of it, where the gay male community pretty much just ignored us and they tend to dominate the gay press. And so we were really undercovered in that region, that area. Like they're just, you know, Curve magazine covered us. Lesbian News put us on the cover. You know, when Diva came along, they 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 covered us. But there was a lack of coverage in the LGBTQ community. And it was actually Heartthrob, our really big pop record that came out in 2012, 2013, when the gay community really, really jumped on board. And so I think for a long time, we actually felt really isolated. We weren't celebrated by the gay community. Um, straight press, I think, played a role in creating this idea that we were an LGBTQ icon status band, but I think that that was pretty untrue for a long time. We were much more celebrated in the indie rock world than we ever were in the LGBTQ world. Now, if we're not talking about press and coverage in the mainstream, like, sure, yeah, I think I think a lot of queer people supported us and came to our shows. We saw them firsthand. I mean, if we're saying, like, yes, there were women who had short hair in our audience or who looked like us, there were a lot of people in the mid-2000s who had mullets, and maybe they were queer, I don't know, but... Um, we hoped so. We hoped so. But it was just it was just a different time. We didn't talk about it the way that we do now. So it's it's all guesswork. But um, I, I would say that it was really in 2012 when we sort of became more mainstream and pop that we just saw this influx of coverage from the queer community. And then the straight media started kind of adopting this like LGBTQ icons, lesbian icons, queer icons like that was sort of put on us. Um, which was also hard for us because then we often felt awkward because why were we the ones that got to be called that? You know, there was a lot of people in our community that were like, you don't represent us. You are not my voice. And it's, we went through a whole phase where we apologized all the time for that, where we're like, sorry, we're the the queer band that we, only one of us gets to be part, partially famous at a time. So especially around the, like, everything is awesome, Oscars, closer time period, there was a lot of apologies on our side of things because there was a lot of queer people meeting us and saying, yeah, I like your band, but... Like, I like straight people music, too. And it was just like, ah. So, I don't know. It's just like a lot of awkwardness. <laughs> I think, too, like, you know, one of the things that I'm starting to realize now as we're looking back, there was this 
there is a scarcity issue when you don't have a lot of queer people making art publicly or being celebrated publicly. It can be really frustrating when someone starts to hog all the gay attention. Well, and that's just a reality, and I don't hold it against anyone. Like, I just am like, I have seen it happen. I've seen it happen from afar now. Someone new and gay comes out, and you just think to yourself, like, why are they getting all the covers of the magazines? Like, good for you. You came out. Like, you, you know, and I just think there's like a little bit of a like cattiness because there's not a lot of space for us. And so not us like me and Tegan, but like space for gay people. So when you start to see gay people get celebrated, I think there's like some a little bit of like cattiness and infighting. And I think Tegan is right that there was something about specifically around gay men that we didn't quite understand initially. And I now know that it's misogyny. I think there was a lot of men who didn't like us because we were women who had short hair and didn't wear makeup and we weren't like, we weren't like, we weren't, they they weren't interested in hearing our story and they weren't interested in the way we looked. And there was a sort of like, sorry, you don't represent the gay culture that we're representing. And so I don't think we knew that at the time, but I know that now. And I know that because those problems exist within our community well well outside of the entertainment industry. It's about fundraising and it's about what, what issues co- concern our community. It's about representation. It's about who is important and who holds power, both financial and otherwise. You know, when we started to understand how our community, um, the problems within our community, just because you're gay doesn't mean you have good politics, doesn't mean you have good identity politics, doesn't mean you're not an ass. So I think like once we started to realize like, okay, we're dealing with some big systemic issues here. This isn't just like people are like, I don't know. I don't really like Tegan and Sarah's mullets. Like this was big stuff that we had to kind of unpack. And at 21, we had none of the experience or education to deal with that. Whereas like at 39 now, I can say to like the editor of a big gay magazine, hey, I know you called us lesbian 40,000 times in this interview. We've asked time and again, please call us gay or please call us queer. Please don't gender us. Please don't do this thing or that thing. Like we never used to stand up for ourselves because we were so afraid of those, um, you know, those gatekeepers. Gatekeepers. Yeah. <laughs> just thought of that. Just thought of that. But I just, um, yeah, we've we've really tried to sort of like in a really Canadian polite way start sort of shuffling things around that we sort of accepted through our 20s that I just don't want to accept anymore. Well, thank you for that. I just have a couple more questions. Um, you know, the book ends with Garage Wars basically around when you you both find success. And so along the similar lines to what we're talking about, I'm curious, you know, what the next book would be about, what you would try to chronicle, what would be the through line of that next chapter? <laughs> It'll be about the gatekeepers in the early aughts and... Um, and it might be the most controversial thing we do. <laughs> I think we definitely think of the the next few years after we graduated high school as being an interesting place to mine next. Now, is it worthy of a book? Is it something that would hold our interest or anyone else's? I'm not entirely sure. But we do obviously intentionally leave the reader wondering, even though you do know what happens to us because you can just go on the Internet and type in gay twins and Tegan and Sarah pop up, but I mean... Don't do that Google yeah. search, you guys. Yeah, that's just, not that's what's actually probably problematic. <laughs> it's actually search, not. Yeah. If you put gay twins right now, I b- believe me when I tell you that it's not going to be anything wholesome. Okay, how about Canadian gay twins? You probably would definitely get us. No, again, I'm really just <laughs> suggesting you don't do that. All right, so I think that there are the... We intentionally left the reader wondering what happens. I mean, we intentionally didn't 
go into our coming out. I don't I don't address my coming out at all. Sarah just starts to touch on it in the uh, uh, in the uh, epilogue. And so, you know, I think that that was definitely us saying there might be another book or there might be an opportunity to tell the next chapter of the story. Again, that that early part of our career from 1998 till I would say probably 2003 is very under covered. And uh, they're just, you know, we didn't have a lot of press and no social media. So there's definitely, I think, an opportunity to dive into the early part of our career and our co- and our official coming out. Um, I think we're always just struggling with like, what does our audience want? So I, th- I think we need to see how people react to this book and see if there is a natural evolution towards telling the next part of our story. Ultimately, we do want to make sure we're always giving our audience what it is they want, you know, so. I think too, like, I mean, not to be like, argumentative but it's so funny because I actually don't feel in any way like I think what drew me to writing about high school I mean first and foremost is like am I interested in it do I want to spend a year and a half with myself as a teenager and of course in my mind I'm thinking I think our fans will be really into this but like the I couldn't believe how much work it took to write a book like you know music is is complicated and, you know, and inspiration comes in waves and I've had bouts of writer's block and, you know, there's lots of things that are difficult about making music, but like just the discipline and like the sort of like sitting for eight hours at a time, day in and day out for months and months and months on top of months and months and months. It it was hard. It was really, really hard. And it's not, it wasn't rewarding in the way that we've become used to, um, like, the reward of making music is that even at the end of a day when a song is in its most basic, early, like, zygote form, I can play it for Tegan or I can play it for my girlfriend or I can even listen to it myself and sort of have a third-person kind of experience. Writing is really isolating, and it's really, um, there's a sort of, it's just different. And so I think for me, like, if we're going to sit down and write a book again, I need to be invested in it. Like, as Tegan was just talking about writing about the early part of our music career, I, 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 do, I, found, I just find myself just totally disinterested in that for some reason. But I will say that, you know, whatever we write about next, you know, it has to hold our attention. It has to be something we want to deeply research and explore because that was what really was, qual- like, required of this, this book. Yeah, well, I'd be, I'd be interested in it. <laughs> maybe, you and Tegan, maybe you and Tegan, you can go straight my part and Tegan can, <laughs> Tegan can help you out with it. No, I mean, at some point, maybe. I think what it is, I'm going to be like probably regret saying this, but I just find music memoirs about careers really boring. And I don't know if there's a way for us to write about it in a way that doesn't feel insidery. Like... I have read so many music memoirs that, like, describe the inside of a tour van or, like, the backstage rider, like, the food people get on. Like, I just am like, I live that nightmare every day. I don't (laughs) want to write about it. Like, I want to write about the things that are intriguing to people and interesting, but I also want to be interested in it myself. And so I'm like, there must be something from that time that would be interesting to me. But right now when I think about it, it just makes me feel like... I don't know, like just like I just don't want to do it. I don't I don't know. But um but I think that there will there was like a learning curve about high school for me where, you know, we are having some of the most stimulating and rewarding conversations of our career, including this one. And, you know, there's there's something so joyful to me about spending so much time working on a project and then getting to go out into the world and talk about it and feel like it all made it worth it. And whatever we end up putting out into the world next, I hope that it 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 yields that sort of same experience. Well, you know, my last question is, uh, you know, our series is called American Masters, <laughs> and both of you were technically born and raised in Canada, but, you know, you've, you've obviously had a huge impact in America, so I was hoping you could just, you know, maybe talk about 
the differences you experienced uh, once you started to find an international audience in your career? It, it, it's, it's interesting because I think a lot of people, that might be an interesting book for us to write, is all the ways that Americans dealt with us when we were just young Canadians. <laughs> well, yeah, and I was going to say that <laughs> there, we actually, we signed our record deal in America, um, and we were always treated as an American artist. Even in Canada, it felt a bit like, because, I, I don't know if it was deliberate or not, but because we signed in America, there seemed to be a hands-offness that was... Um, a big, big part of the early part of our career in Canada. Um, you know, our equivalent of the Grammys are called the Junos, and we, we've we had nominations over the years from, like, you know, one nomination for, like, an alternative record of the year kind of thing, but we didn't win in uh, Juno until 2015, and a reminder that we started in 1998. Um, so, I, so Canada hates us. Well, they definitely didn't, but... It, in a weird way, we just, we played the game in America. We chose, there was sort of like, you can choose to play the game in one place or distribute it all over the world. And we we did choose to play the game in America. We signed in America. We moved to America. We, you know, coupled with Americans, we, we really invested deeply in our career in America. And it was very early on that we started to also invest in places like Australia and Europe and the UK. And, and uh, Canada was a part of it. But that was not something we necessarily decided for ourselves. It's just the first person who signed us was Elliot Roberts, who managed Neil Young. And they had an imprint out of Santa Monica. And they took us for dinner at South by Southwest in 2000 and said, don't worry about Canada. They will follow you. They will they will figure out who you are, and they'll love you, but you need to go around the world. You need to build a career elsewhere. Don't get trapped on the Trans-Canada Highway, which is the highway that runs from one end of Canada to the other, and, and a lot of artists do get trapped in Canada, and, you know, it's a great country to be trapped in. <laughs> Would have been okay probably too, but we were really obsessed with seeing the world, and right away as 19-year-olds going down to the U.S., and then, you know, when we were 20, we went over to Europe for the first time. We were shocked. I mean, you know, it's a culture shock to go to Europe. It's a culture shock to go to America. Everything is different. You know, I think we experienced just every part of the first few years of our career as a culture shock. Um, You know, we didn't have cell phones. There was no Wi-Fi, you know, or internet. We were so disconnected from our family and friends. We went to Europe the first time and we had Canadian dollars in our wallets. You know, we had no idea where to even go to get money. You know, we didn't have credit cards. We <laughs> called my mom collect, and then she said, don't call me again. It's going to be too expensive. I mean, we were so <laughs> naive. We were so young. You know, you know, now you Google everything. You look up everything. We had no idea what we were doing for the first couple years of our career. We just, you know, everything was a culture shock, and we were treated like a novelty everywhere we went. You know, people couldn't believe we were from Canada. It was such a different time. We played Letterman when we were 20 years old and a radio station from Edmonton, Alberta got the hotel number and woke me up at 6.30 in the morning. And we were, I can't remember now. I I, I don't even want to estimate because I don't want to seem like an idiot, but we were one of like a dozen Canadian acts or something that had ever played on Letterman. And we had gotten invited to sit on the couch and actually talk to Letterman. And, you know, it was just so novel. When we would tell people that we were from Canada, they'd be like, no way. This is incredible. How did you get here? You know, it was like on an airplane. Like, you know, it was just so different. And now it's like we get on stage and we're like, we're from Canada. And people are like, they're like, what state's Great. that in? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming in. I really appreciate it. Thank you so Thank much. You. This was great. Thank you again.
The American Masters podcast was created by Michael Cantor and is produced by Joe Skinner. And co-produced by Josh Hamilton with sound engineering by Josh Broom, Evan Joseph, and John Berman. For American Masters, we thank series producer Julie Sachs and associate producer Christiana Lombardo. Our theme music is by Infinity Shred. We'd also like to thank the American Masters interns for their contributions to this episode, Christina Darko and Giovanna Drummond. Thanks for listening. And please don't forget to give us a rating or a review and tell a friend about us or share a favorite episode. See you in a couple weeks. Do you have a grunge phase, Josh? Did I? I'm still in my grunge phase. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>